A lot of folks don't have problems with you talking about Jesus or even talking about the gospel or the Bible until you start bringing up this idea that there is no other way of getting right with God outside of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the dividing line in our society. And it's not new. It's not just something that's developed in the last 20 years. It has always been the dividing line ever since Jesus said, I am truth. At that moment, when Jesus made that statement, I am truth, he polarized everybody and said, either I can get that or this guy's nuts. And anyone who believes that's nuts. I, and that's the idea that we get now if we say that Jesus is truth. Jesus is life. Jesus is the exclusive uh, mode, manner, method of getting right with God. Um, it doesn't matter how nice you are. Oprah, the epitome of, of being nice, rejected that wholeheartedly on her show and said, that's crazy, that's narrowed. Really, you don't think that, do you? And all the women who had once thought that, all of a sudden felt uncomfortable even watching the show. Oh, Oprah. Oprah's not down with what I believe. And and, and I remember in college uh, being challenged on this point and done in such a clear manner before all my peers uh, and a professor saying, "If do you really believe, Jared? And call me by name in front of the class. Do you really believe, Jared, that if we don't believe in Jesus Christ that we're going to go to this hell and he had just described hell in, in, in very vivid manners. Do you really believe that? And I had to do a, a check. Um, yeah. It wasn't really bold. It wasn't your pastor declaring with great strength, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Me and my other buddy and we just walked away and we were just so shocked. This guy, I, I felt outed in front of the class that what I believed and, and what I believed I ought to be ashamed of in some way, in some fashion. And that's the, the idea society tells us. You ought to be ashamed for believing such crazy, limited, narrow-minded, bigoted, stupid thought like that. How dare you make a statement such as this? Well... Here I go again, um, John 14, verse 6. Uh, not only am I going to be talking about that this morning, our whole week is based on this. <laughs> In Vacation Bible School, uh, it's our theme. So it, I'm going to deviate from Galatians for a little bit to um, go along with what we're talking about in Vacation Bible School. But I, I, I found amazing um, connections between what we've been talking about in Galatians. Uh, and I'm finding that Paul's strength and being able to tell religious people who were very good moral folks and saying, look, we need to be obeying the law, we need to be doing the uh, the circumcision the, and the festivals, and we need to be celebrating things just like the Jews did, and, and having this, that Paul had the strength and the guts, the gall, to say to them, if you preach anything other than Jesus Christ, this revelation, let you go to hell. And that was what he was saying and Galatians chapter 1, in fact, repeated himself 
in that passage, that's the anamethor, let him be accursed, let him be damned. So, Paul, you know, how, how can he be such a stickler? I mean, really? Aren't we to be nice? I'm finding that, that Paul's strength in making such statements really come from Jesus' words as such in John 14, verse 6. Paul is just applying and being consistent with what he heard his master say uh, in Revealed in the Gospels. And so, it's with this thought, uh, where we go to John 14, verse 6, this is kind of the last gathering time he has with the disciples before the cross. This is uh, these are the series from John 13, 14, 15, all the way through. Uh, through uh, 17 is Jesus' last words with in the Last Supper and as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's preparing them for what they're about to see in the next 24 hours. Their master, the ones that's been with them the three years, is going to be put on the cross. He's going to be slandered. He's going to be made fun of. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be stripped naked before everybody and pelled upon a cross thereby saying that this man is cursed and, and he knows his disciples are about to see these things and he's preparing them for what they're about to experience and, and then he's saying there's, there's going to be a, a resurrection and I, I want you to know that this is coming and, and right before this uh, in John 13 he's just, he has just told the boldest most vocal disciple man you're about to to bite it. You're about to fall and bust, and you're going to do it three times. You're going to deny me three times. And, and Peter's just made these bold statements that I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. That kind of shakes up all the disciples because if Peter's doing that, what are we all going to do? And they're all kind of discouraged by this. And so, verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, look, Jesus says, don't be troubled. Just believe in me. I think that's in contrast and believe in yourself. Don't believe in yourself, Peter. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Just believe me. In my Father's house, many rooms, but not so, I wouldn't have told you that I'd go prepare a place for you. In other words, in God's home, there's room for you. It's not this idea of you get this mansion like some songs that we sing. But no, there's just there's room for you. And God's home, there's room for you. And I'm going to go, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And this is one of my greatest hopes I have, that as I come to my dying day, Jesus said, I'm going to be with him. And you know the way to where I'm going. Tom said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And it sets us up to verse 6. They didn't realize what they knew. They knew Jesus, but they didn't know really what they knew when they knew Jesus. When I was at the Spring Fling, I was talking to a lady, and we were having this conversation going on, and she said, man, I'd really like to know who the pastor is. I want to I want to talk to him. I said, really? You want to know who the pastor is? And I just, I just kind of kept the conversation going. I thought, sweet, she doesn't know I'm the pastor. Let me... Let me find out some information, you know, and just kind of get her opinion on everything. And when the conversation's all over with, I'm, I'm the pastor. You're the pastor? Are you kidding me? You know, it's like, yeah, I'm the pastor. Yeah. She didn't know what she, re- what, what she knew. She knew me. She was getting to know me, but she didn't really have an idea of who she knew. And so you have the disciples here doing the same thing. They didn't really have an idea of knowing who they really knew. 
And Jesus speaks to this. And that's where we come to verse 6. And so, in honor of this being God's Word, let's stand as we read this. Though the world spits on this, let His followers stand in honor of this verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be seated. I'm going to condense this passage and just talking about three, uh, three parts of this verse. Uh, and that's very clearly stated for you. Jesus said, I am the way. I want us to add, I am the way. No man comes to the Father but through me. These phrases go together. Uh, so he simply is the path. Jesus is our everything for reconciliation with God. Jesus is our everything. That, that no man comes to the Father except through me. He is our everything to get right with God. And, and that's the problem with the Galatian controversy and that Paul was correcting. They were saying Jesus is part of it, but then there's also our obedience to the law. Paul is saying heartily, wholeheartedly, no, you came in by Christ, you came in by grace, it's by grace alone, which is an application of what Jesus is saying here. I am the way, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is not another path, there's not another thing that's added to this. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You see this exclusive aspect all throughout the Old Testament. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20, It says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. All in the Old Testament, you see that the presence of God is an exclusive thing. It excludes everybody. And then you see some exceptions. Remember in the Garden of Eden uh, when mankind, Adam and Eve, Sin disobeyed God and thought they needed this fruit in addition to their fellowship with God to be as wise as God. And so they disobeyed God. They become ashamed of their sin. God confronts them, gives them the penalties and consequences of this. And then they're taken out of the Garden of Eden. And they're separated from the tree of life. And God sends a flaming sword with cherubim, with an angel's, to make sure that mankind no longer has access to the tree of life. Man is excluded. And then you see that same image in the tabernacle, when the, in the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's holy presence. There the, the Bible gives instruction that there are to be the uh, cherubim over the mercy seat to, to say that this, the holiness, the presence of God is guarded once again. And then God appoints a Levite, the high priest, one person who is able to have access to the presence of God to represent the people. One person, not just a tribe, but one person ever at a time to represent all of people. And so there's this exclusive relationship that he has symbolically pointed to in this priestly role of one person. Then we see in the temple later on that's built, again, the same cherubim. I think it's interesting that when Jesus ascends up to be with the Father in heaven, the Bible says that the heavens open up. The heavens open up for Jesus to go. 
<coughs> and then Jesus, as he's ascending, people are looking up, <clears throat> and then angels appear. Angels appear and say to the disciples, why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, in the same way he's going up, he's going to come again. I think it's interesting that the angels are there, once again, guarding the open place of heaven. There's this exclusive relationship that's going on that the Bible speaks to from the Old Testament into the New so that Jesus says, I'm that way. I am that way. Just as the Old Testament has pointed to it, I am that one. John the Baptist prepared this in Matthew 3, verse 3. Thank you. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, the way of the Lord. John's coming and preparing. In fact, this phrase, the way, was so popular that it was the name for followers of Jesus. They weren't known as Christians. Before that, they were known as followers of the way. You see this in Acts 9, verse 2, Acts 19, verse 9, and verse 23, Acts 22, verse 4, Acts 24, verse 14 through 22. We are followers of the way. Jesus, uh, A.W. Tozer said this, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. And that's where society chokes on that. Uh, we can't take that. We're just repeating what Jesus himself says that is pointed to all throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, I remember when, um, when I started driving, and it dawned on me that I, all of a sudden, when I'm starting to drive by myself, I have to know how to get to places. And it never really dawned on me. And here's how it dawns on me. I, I go somewhere, and I can't find my way back. Do you know how embarrassing it is? I've lived in Raleigh all my life, 16, I'm somewhere, and I'm calling, um, Dad, Mom, how do I get home? <laughs> how does that happen? How does someone go for 16 years riding around in a car, but when they're in the car, they don't know how to get anywhere? Let me tell you how that happened. Let me explain myself. Um, I never focused on how I got somewhere. I just focused on, on being in the car. As long as I'm with mom and dad, I, don't, I never had to worry about it. All right? And so now I'm not with mom and dad, and I've got, oh my God, I don't know these things. It it's never was upon me. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to give you the map. I want you to focus on me. What you have here is that in this passage, Jesus is lifting up the fact that there's a relationship required to be with God. There's nothing that you point to. There's someone that you're with. There's someone that is that you're in. Okay? And so when I'm walking around with my children now, I don't take time to explain to them when we're in a crowd... All right, now you got to look for this this landmark, and you got to go turn right on this next corner, and then I don't do that. You know what I do? Hey, hey, stay with me. Hey, ah, okay, hold my hand. All right, we're gonna hold hands. All right, I don't. I'm not pointing them to something. I'm pointing them to me, and I'm, and I get to enjoy holding their hand. And so, what you've got here, when Jesus says, 
I am the way, what you have is God working in such a way that you are dependent on Him because He wants you dependent on Him. You're not saved by reformation. You're not saved by discipline. You're saved by a person through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our everything for reconciliation with God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But we'll keep on. We, this next phrase. I am the truth. I am the truth. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our everything for revelation of God. That's what Philip wasn't quite getting. He knew Jesus, but he didn't know what he knew. So Jesus says to him, look, Philip, you've been with me this long. Do you not realize that when you see me, you see the Father? I reveal the God who created you. I reveal the God who knows everything about you. I reveal the one who is the source of beauty, the source of love, the source of honesty, the truth, the justice. I reveal this one. When you see me, you've seen the Father. John 1.17, you see this theme all throughout John. John says in 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he, Jesus reveals the true God. As in John 1, verse 14 through 17, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. The glory as the only of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John five thirty three, You sent to John and He has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist bore witness of the truth in Jesus Christ. John 18.37, Jesus is before Pilate and he's being interrogated by Pilate. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come to the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked the question of the ages, what is truth? Jesus is saying, it's not a what. It's a he. I'm truth. You have this theme throughout John 8, verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. These are the Pharisees talking. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me, for I come from God. And I am here. I come not of my own cord, but he sent me. Why do you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the father of the devil and your will, your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and father of the lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? What he's saying is truth flows from me. I am truth. Look at me. I reveal God to you. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Now this is a remarkable statement. Mankind just does not go around saying, I'm truth. <laughs> That's not our nature. Most of us understand that we're limited in our knowledge. We can't say I'm truth. We might say truth. We might 
say things that are true. Man reveal God by their words, but Jesus reveals them by himself and the facts of his life. Just look at me. Now, here's the thing. What I love about this personal relationship, it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue. With Jesus being our way, he says, look, you don't need to know the way, you just need to know me. When Jesus is truth, he says, I'm not going to give you reasons. I give you myself. You know, there's sometimes at home, we're talking with our kids, and we just tell them something to do. And our family, our children are like me, like my wife. They like to argue it. They, they answer back with the reasons as to why they should or shouldn't do what we just said. And then they're looking for conditions and exceptions. But what if we do this? What if, after a while, I realize what's going on. I say, who, who brought this up to debate? I, this is not a debatable point. This is not, I didn't tell you this so that you would argue it. I just told you. Do it. Stop arguing. All right? So, every parent knows that. Every child hates that. All right? What God is doing with us, he says, I'm truth. It's not up for debate. I'm not going to give you the reasons why I did something. You know why? If God gave us the reasons why or why not he treated us the way he does, what do we do? The same thing we do with our parents. We'd argue with them. I think about that in John 11. Jesus hears about his buddy, Lazarus, being sick. Word gets to him. And the Bible says it this way. So he waited three days. So he waited. He knew he was sick, so he waited. <laughs> oh, oh, that doesn't make sense, Jesus. And after a while, Jesus, knowing what's going to happen, realizes this is going to be for the glory of God, he, he does show up. But Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for several days now. So Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they come up to Jesus, and they're glad to see him, but then they voice the question that we're all thinking, Jesus, why didn't you come? If, if you could have, if you came, you could have healed him. You could have prevented this death. Why didn't you come? Jesus doesn't really answer their question. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was kind of tired. Or, you know, there were some other folks that were really sick. Or, you know, I, I felt like I really needed to hang out there and help them get the point of who I was. He doesn't give the reasons why. But he responds. Interesting. He asks, do you believe that I am the life? It, he asks them questions. What, what, do they, what do you believe about me? What do you believe about me? And then in John chapter 11, we see that verse 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. I don't give you a reason. I give you myself. This is truth. 
This is who I am. I'm the resurrection. I am the life. And then he makes this statement. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And all of our questions that we often have about God, Jesus is not going to promise, I'm going to tell you why you got sick or why your children act the way they do or why what happened to them happened to them or why you lost your job or all these things that we often tend to ask. God, why? Jesus does not do that. He's not stooping down to our arguments based on limited knowledge that we know very little about. He just says, you know what? you got to believe that I know things that you don't know. That if I'm powerful enough to change the things like you're putting on me, then you've got to believe that I've got enough uh, wisdom and I'm all-knowing enough to say there's things you don't comprehend. And I'm not going to stoop to that. I'm just going to give you myself. And the question is, is that enough? Jesus says, I am the truth. Not for you to argue with, but for you to know. For you to know. And so it's deeply personal. Deeply personal. And so that takes us to the next phrase. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our everything for revelation of God. He's our everything for reconciliation with God, and He is our everything for life. I am life. Well, I thought life is something we have, Jesus. I mean, I've got life, right? No, you've got just a little remnant of who Jesus is. But I don't know Jesus. And that's how gracious God is. He's given you a little remnant of who He is. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, the one or the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, eternal life is knowing God. Knowing Him. That's why eternal life begins at the moment you're reconciled with God. And ultimately is fulfilled when we are in the place with God. Totally removed from our sin. John 11, again, he says, I am the life. I am the resurrection. John 1, 4, referring to Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. I've thought about, what does that mean? Life is the light of men. He says, to know God, to know him and have a living relationship with him is to be the focus of your existence, your light. It will direct you in all that you do. We have a um, uh, a gardenia bush. We, this is our first time we've actually had flowers on it um, since we planted it a number of years ago. And uh, gardenia is a special memory. It was the flower that uh, was in uh, our wedding, and our wedding director was um, different. Um, if you saw Father the Bride and saw that wedding director, um, it kind of like that mold. And so Conrad got... Uh, gardenias everywhere from some other country. And, and so whenever we smell gardenia, I, I, I love the gift that he gave us and that it's a memory of our wedding. 
And so we've, you know, we, we rejoiced when we actually had flowers on this bush. And, and uh, we cut it and put it in uh, a little vase in our kitchen. And, you know, those things are very fragrant. And so we go in the kitchen and every once in a while I just catch this beautiful scent. And I look over there and I see that flower. And everyone knows that because that flower's in that vase, the beauty and scent, though sweet, is fading. And there's not much hope for that flower. <laughs> all, it, all the hope we have is in the present and what it's putting out. It's been cut off. But it's just a, a little remnant of life in that that is smelling up our house and bringing beauty. What every human being is, is as a flower cut off. Every human being, though born, we see that sweet little baby, we think, oh, this is so great. You know, we've got someone to carry our names, going to carry so much potential. But at the moment of that life beginning, it's been cut off. And though there's a sweetness there, there's a beauty there, there's a joy, there's pleasure, there's things to adore and to be in wonder at in this life, though there is a sweetness to it, it is ultimately cut off and that beauty, that sweetness is waning. And it will end. It will end. What Jesus is offering to us when he says, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He is offering to every little flower bud out there saying, I have a way for you to be grafted back into the vine from which your life first came. Of which that flower first came was from the nourishment that came through that vine. And if you would just come back into that vine, you're going to experience life as it meant to me as one where you know the eternal Father. That is eternal life. And He offers us that opportunity. But we, seeing this, saying, you know what? If, but if I go back in that vine, that means I can't be in the water anymore. And the water's good. It's clear. There's sweetness to it. In this life, there are pleasures that God has made. They're made by God. Just as that water is that flower. And they may sustain us for a little while. But it's often just a distraction until we die. Watching TV, that little water that's, that's giving me a little joy. Watching the movie, or, or living for work, or living for, for money, or living for family. And it's like, well, there's such sweet, beautiful things in these, in these things. That, but it's just a little bit of water that's sustaining for a little while, but you're dying. And that water is ultimately not going to keep you from dying. It's just something distracting you while you die. Jesus is saying, I am the life. I offer you an opportunity to get back into the Father. Because of your sin has separated you. You've been cut off. And Jesus said, I'm the only way that can happen to get back into the Father. Too many times we as believers settle for the initial understanding of the way to God as the gospel. Oh yeah, okay. ABC, accept Christ, believe Him as my Savior, confess my sins, confess Him as Lord. And, and we, okay, Jesus is the way. 
I get that. And then we'll may settle for the, the truth. I'm going to believe certain things about Jesus Christ. And we'll focus and we'll study on the truth. But so few, so few know Jesus as their life. You may know him as your way, but do you know him as your life? That As Paul, you can say, I've learned there is such a way of living with God the Father. That I consider all the things that this world applauds, that religion says I'm good at. And I consider them as dung, as rubbish compared to the ecstasy of knowing Jesus Christ. Believer... Don't just settle for the fact that you know Jesus as the way of your salvation, that you know the truth of Jesus, but know His life. Live His life. Christ is in you, which is the hope of glory. It is to say what we said last time, to be filled with the Spirit of God. It is, it is, it is not an option, but is necessary, because it is, it is His Spirit that is Christ. And it is the Spirit of truth. It is His Spirit of life. It is His way that is in us now to be yielded and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let that nourish you, let that feed you. Jesus is such that He offers it out. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that if anyone would believe upon Him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. This life is offered up to you. So no one, the last phrase, comes to the Father except through me. We see Peter and the disciples repackage that in Acts 4.12 and says, uh, there is salvation and no under, other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. It's through Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why is Jesus the only way? Why can't we have plans B, C, and D and, and any other ones that mankind creates? Why, why are we such sticklers on this? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is Paul saying that and damning everyone that doesn't? Why? Well, let me just bring some thoughts to you. I, I can't exhaust this subject to you. But I would say, one, Jesus and the cross and grace, in other words, that righteousness is as a gift to you, is the only way that ruins our self-centered pride. Jesus, on the cross, grace given to us, is the only way to ruin our self-centered pride. You say, well, Pastor, you don't even know all the religions. How can you say this? Well, when it's all said and done, either you get right with God by what you do, or you get right with God by what God has done. And when you look at all the various religions, usually it's summed up by this is what you do and don't do to get right with God. Even if it's just to say, I'm got, I've got to get to my mental, emotional state of, of the point of nothingness where I lose all my desires. Well, how do you do that? I, I just got to meditate and I got to be disciplined in my meditation. But what's the key in that? It's what you do. It's what you do. Whether it's to say, uh, well, you know, I've got five main methods and, and I've got to bow down and say that there is no other God but God and Allah and there's no other prophet but Muhammad and there's, and I'm, and I'm gonna give and I'm gonna go to Mecca and I'm, and I'm gonna do all these different things. That, but it's still based on what you do. 
and don't do. Or maybe it's just, well, you know, I just need to go walk down the aisle and talk to the pastor and pray with the pastor, whatever he leads you in praying, and then get baptized publicly by immersion. You don't sprinkle, you gotta get dunked, you know, and, and then just be there every week. And it's what you do. And I could go on. I'm just going to give you different things, but it's still what you do. Jesus is saying, it's what I've done for you. Now, why is that significant? Because my self-centered pride is longing, longing to applaud the works that I do. And I want to say to God, and I want to say to the watching world, look how good I am. Look what, what I've done. God, you must accept me because I am so good. Everybody, let the watching world look at all the things I've done. And that's the problem. If this was a world made for you, you'd be, you'd have it made. But the Bible says from the very beginning, this world wasn't made for you. God made this world and he made it from his glory. He made it for his glory. And that's the problem. We come in living for our glory. I remember one time someone someone stole a weed eater from me. Electric. One of these rechargeable deals. I was mad. Someone stole. I mean, it's just like, I can't believe someone stole my weed eater, you know, and. I was just dealing with this, and I and I knew this bitterness, this resentment that I had was just not right, and I, and I wasn't quite sure how do I deal with this. And I was going through the strategies I might tell someone else, um, and so I was thinking, well, you know, have I ever done anything bad like this? Have I ever stolen? And I couldn't think of anything that I've stolen from anyone else, and and so I went to the the Malachi passage which says, if you don't tithe, then you've stolen uh, before God. And I was like, well, you know, God, I've always tried to practice. Tithing, um, you know, that's just something I've taken joy in. And I'm like, well, God, I'm lost here. What do I do? And then I was reading the passages about the glory of God. That what God's looking for is not my money. He's looking for his glory. And I sense God speaking to my heart. Have you ever stole God's glory? Oh. I had no moral superior view on someone else who stole my weed eater. See, the problem is that we come into this world thinking that it's about ourselves, but it's a world God has made and He made it for His glory. And it doesn't matter whether you dress it up with religious, righteous-looking stuff and say, I've read the Bible and I've read it through from cover to cover over and over and I've memorized it. I've memorized, I've memorized Leviticus and Numbers. I mean, you can say stuff like that. And you can dress it up, but if the heart is about you, then it's rotten. Because the world isn't made for you. It's made for your glory. And it doesn't matter if I've got Buddhism, or if I've got Muslim, or I've got Jehovah's Witness, or I've got Baptist. It doesn't matter because the problem is still flowing from me when it ought to be that grace has been given to me. And that's the one method that robs me of my pride and self-centeredness. I mean, how do you ruin a prideful people? Just give them something that messes them all up. Just give it to them. Deal with that, buddy. Deal with that. And so the gospel is that God gives us by His grace and is the one way in which our self-centered pride is ruined. 
Why else is it the only way? Well, because we're helpless in our sin. There's nothing we can do, even if we wanted to. It's, it's, the Bible says that when we're in sin, we're cut off. It's like that little gardenia vine trying, flower trying the best that it can to get back into the vine. That little gardenia is helpless. It's stuck wherever I place it. There's no way it's going to get back into the vine by itself. We're helpless. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. In other words, when we're trying to do right, it's still not approved by God because it's tinged by ourselves. A Puritan has said that even the tears of our repentance needs to be washed in the blood of Jesus. We're dead. We're dead. It's like... I remember I had some older cousins, bigger cousins, and we'd wrestle because that's what boys do. And, and every once in a while, they'd get on me and get in a move, and I was just stuck. And they'd say, I'm not letting you up. I'm not letting you up. you got to say uncle. Who's <laughs> uncle? You know, you're just like, and then they say, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? And I was like, at some point, he's like, okay, whatever. I can't get up. You're my daddy. You know? <laughs> it's just that point of utter humility that that guy was going for. And you don't care anymore because you just want to get up, you know, you want to breathe. Sin, our selfishness, has got a hold of our heart. And we can't get it away. We can't push it away. And it's as if we're flat on our back and sin is sitting on us and we're stuck. We're dead. It is like telling a dead person to stand up. We can't do it. We're helpless. And the fact of the matter is God's the only one that says, let me give you life. Let me give you life. It doesn't really matter if another man's telling me something. Interesting, no one really tries to make the claims that Jesus makes. Muhammad just says, well, you know, I, I, I point to the truth. And, and really what happens to me or my followers, I, I don't know. You, <laughs> you've got um, Buddha who calls himself the way shower. I mean, no one's really going to make this claim except Jesus. I'm the truth. Hello, what's your name? I'm the truth. He he makes those statements. He's the only one offering. He's the only one that says to a dead person, come out, Lazarus. And they do. We're as in a cemetery right now. The only way we can get right with God is when Jesus says, follow me, I'll forgive you, have life, have life. Why is Jesus the only way? Well, not only is the only way to stop our self-centered pride, it's also because we're helpless and we have no methods on our own. And he's the only one offering to forgive us of our sins, that can forgive us of our sins. But let me ask you this. How can just God, holy God, simply declare you right and still be just? I mean, if I came to any convicted person and just said, by the authority invested in me, you are innocent. It really wouldn't make a difference. They're still going to prison, wouldn't it? Because I have no authority invested in me to make such claims. But what if I did? What if the president said, 
I'm going to pardon you. But he was so audacious to say, I'm not even going to pardon you. I'm just going to say, you didn't even do that. You're right. You're righteous. We would say, though that president may have the power to pardon him, you don't have the power to do that. And if you did, you're wrong. You're not righteous, president. But that's what God does, isn't it? When he says to people who are sinners, you're righteous. I'm going to say that Jesus is the only way because it's the only way a just God remains just and yet declares us right. How does that happen? Jesus takes your penalty. And so he can still maintain his justice because justice has been served on Jesus Christ on your behalf. Any other way where you say, well, God, you know, I'm just going to try to do the best I can with weather method. And, and if I'm not sure which method, I'm going to try them all. What does Jesus do with our sin? All it takes is one sin for a holy and just God. But here's the beautiful thing that Jesus is getting them to understand. I'm your life. I am the life. I am the truth. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. But if you are in me and I in you, as he goes on in 15 and says, the vine and the branches, then I'm taking you home. You're going home if you're in me. Who can mind the journey when the road leads home? And that's what I want you to understand. God doesn't want your home to be here. The beautiful things of this life are just traces of who God is, but they're cut flowers and they're going to end one day. But he wants you to know the source of the things beautiful in this life. And that, he says, can be your home. I'm going to go prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if you are in me, you're going to go through some difficult stuff. He told Peter that, you know what, watch closely because it's going to happen to you on this cross. But if the road leads home, who can complain? And the sad reality is that too many folks may have made this life their home. And so when death comes, they look not at what they're going, but they mourn and grieve that which they're losing. And I just want to present to you, and Jesus is presenting to you, Look not at these things of this earth. Do not set your minds on these things below, but set your heart and mind on things above where Jesus Christ is because there is access even now between the invisible God through Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, into your heart. Believe that He loves you. Believe that He's called you right and that it's done by nothing but the sheer grace of God as a gift given to you. Thank Him profusely and let the joy fill your heart and direct your day. And you'll find that your heart starts setting toward home. Let's pray.